Hello and welcome to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. We have got a great show today. We've got so much information that we need to talk about. Things continue to be a little bit crazy, and yet uh, so much is being revealed about the major changes that need to happen systemically in public health globally, um, around the world, and right here in Washington State. So um, I want to remind listeners, like I, I have been doing lately at the top of the hour, that health has nothing to do with fear. Fear of microbes will get us nowhere. You cannot wage war against an entire family of viruses, the coronavirus. 99.9% of people, if their immune systems are are properly supported, um, have a very lovely interaction with the coronavirus and emerge with very long lasting immunity. And there are great treatments that have emerged to help people who need more than that. That information is what needs to get out and part of what we do here at an uh, an Informed Life Radio is try to help you with those resources so you can explore what real health means, susceptibility factors that you can personally address so you know in advance of any infection what your treatment options are and what you might want to choose. A great place to go, of course, is informedchoicewa.org, the nonprofit that is the sponsor of the Informed Life Radio, also Children's Health Defense, who is also sponsoring an hour of this radio show. We are so grateful to Children's Health Defense. You can go to childrenshealthdefense.org. Excellent information, articles, all fully cited, hyperlinked to the science so you can make up your own mind about, you know, what you think and believe. And science is, is never settled. It's, it's always ongoing. Um, and also healthyimmunitynow.org is another great resource for you to check out. It's got all the existing treatment protocols linked to the science. You can go explore and uh, find out a world of, of things that you're not hearing from mainstream news. And yet it's when you go look at the, um, the citations, we're, it's, it's all citing uh, mainstream science. It's just not making it to the news or coming out of public health officials. So because we have so much to talk about, I'm going to go ahead and introduce right away our first guest this hour is Dr. Alvin Moss, and I'm just going to bring him on and let him tell us who he is. I I first met Dr. Moss when he was interviewed, very brave soul, um, on the Vaxxed bus, and I guess we should probably explain to some listeners new to us what that is, and so I'll just say quickly, um, a couple years ago, I can't, how many years ago has it been now? My goodness, time is flying. But there was a CDC whistleblower who talked about fraud that they had committed on a very important CDC study. And based on that confession and whistleblower, the, the film documentary film Vaxxed was produced. And following that, as the, the film came out, um, a big old RV was painted with the Vaxxed colors, the Vaxxed bus it was, and it went on tour globally, um, mostly in the United States, but it, it, you know, the same team went around to different countries and people everywhere were interviewed to tell their vaccine injury stories. And it wasn't just parents. It was medical professionals who risked their careers to tell their experience, their knowledge. And Dr. Moss was one of those. So welcome, Dr. Moss, to an Informed Life Radio. 
<laughs> good afternoon. How are you? I'm very good. So you you go ahead. You do your disclaimer because I know you have to protect your job. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I am a physician. I'm fellowship trained in clinical medical ethics. And I think it's probably my interest in clinical medical ethics and an awareness of conflicts of interest and how conflicts of interest can affect uh, physicians' interpretation of data and even what they say and what they don't say, it introduces bias. So uh, I really just like everybody else you're talking to, I've been trying to figure out what's going on and trying to use some discernment. And really my opinions are my own. They don't represent those of my employer. So I'll say that. So, um, but I, uh, and, and I'm not saying this to, to boast, but I am a, uh, a reviewer for a number of scientific journals. So I actually do read science and I understand science and I've published over 150 peer reviewed scientific papers. So mm -hmm. although I'm not a virologist or an immunologist, I am, you know, a physician with uh, knowledge about scientific papers and how to read them and what's in them and what's not in them and what the disclosures tell us about potential conflicts of interest. And, and so I bring that, that background. We all, I think, bring a different perspective as we're trying to sort out all this information that's uh, rushing by us and yes. trying to figure out what's what's best for ourselves and our family and our friends. And yes. Just this morning, just this morning, a uh, a, a college student uh, who uh, is the son of of someone I know called me to say, "I'm afraid my college is going to require me to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, I really don't want to get one. Everything I've read suggests that I don't need one and I don't want one. Uh, what do I do?" Mm -hmm. So for me to be able to answer his question, you know, I've had to try and keep up with what's going on and what his options are and what concerns might be if he if he were to get it. So uh, I just sort of present that much to say that I'm in this like you and like everybody else mm -hmm. who's listening. We're trying to figure out what is going on, what's the truth, what's not the truth, what information is is partially true, yeah. uh, is misleading, right? Yeah. And I, I, you know, anybody who has followed um, vaccines for any length of time, gone down the rabbit hole, uh, especially if they've watched like 1986, the act, the documentary that takes you through the history of the public private partnership of the drug industry and public health agencies who choose vaccines as their tool of choice to combat infectious disease, you will see the history st started day one of minimizing the public awareness of risk in order to preserve faith in the vaccine program. That, that began when there was just one vaccine and it has continued on till now we have multiple. And what I thought at the beginning of all this, more than a year ago, that when they had to develop vaccines under the spotlight with the entire world watching, they would not be able to get away with their usual shenanigans. And yeah, I'm not an MD. I'm going to call them sh shenanigans. I don't have a job to lose. I volunteer to do this. And, um, but they're doing it by gum, every single dirty trick that, that we have been fighting against, but they're, and they're doing it under spotlight though, because, and so um, people in the scientific community, in the medical community, and and every community are seeing this. They're going, wait, what? 
What do you say? That doesn't even make sense, right? And they're looking at it and seeing, and now the pushing Dr. Moss. And this is what I was reading that I almost was late to the show because this email just popped in. And there was a meeting today. Now, this is all being pushed out because of the billion-dollar vaccine confidence campaigns being pushed from the federal government. Um, And listen to the target population that the public health agencies say are vaccine hesitant and the reasons they are hesitant um, and how to reach them. So we have younger Native Americans why are they hesitant? They don't, they don't trust or they don't feel like they need it. How to reach them? Develop communication that is culturally relevant. Identify key communi- communication oh, leaders in each tribal group. How about the elderly and homebound? They're hesitant because caregivers are sharing their own vaccine hesitancy beliefs. So they don't think these elderly people are wise enough to make up their own mind. They think it's coming from the outside, from the caregivers. Um, uh, We have pregnant and breastfeeding women. Now, Dr. (laughs) Moss, they're calling any pregnant and breastfeeding person who doesn't want an investigational, non-licensed vaccine that they're worried it will impact their pregnancy and they have concerns about short and long-term side effects. Well, duh, yes. Can we stop there? Can we stop there for a second? This is a perfect example, I think, to really help your your audience, your listenership, understand what's going on. So the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines were not tested in pregnant women. In fact, there was a specific exclusion if you were pregnant you needed, you, you could not be in the study. Right. And you actually, if you wanted to become pregnant within the next two months, you could not be in the study. So they purposely excluded pregnant women. And even in the New England Journal of Medicine article that came out about the, the, the second and third phase of the clinical trial for the Pfizer vaccine, they explicitly said in their discussion, you know, we've not established data with regard to the safety and efficacy in pregnant women. Right. Yeah. And And, and so, well, they've got ongoing trials now, but again, they just started. Right. 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 So we don't have data, but yet we're now getting these very strong recommendations that pregnant women should be vaccinated. And I just find this, this is fascinating. So even today, I think it was today in, in, in the United Kingdom, they announced that where they had previously said in the United Kingdom, the advice to the to the physicians was do not give these vaccines to pregnant or breastfeeding women. Okay, they yeah. they they specifically said that. And oh, and, oh, and we can talk about this. Perfect. So they just turned it around. So let's look at that second paragraph. Ninety thousand pregnant women had been vaccinated. They're looking at the CDC website. But when you actually click on that link, it says it's actually about 86,000 pregnant women had been vaccinated. But a New York Times article two weeks ago, there we go, New York Times article two weeks or or actually in February said the problem with that 86,000 number is it includes many women who are beyond childbearing age and men. So they know they have a problem with their data. So then yeah. if you if you scroll down on that website, you scroll down, yeah, there's the 86,000, but look at the 4,478. 
those are the women who are actually in the V-SAFE registry. So all of a sudden, the Guardian article that says, oh, yeah, it's been tested in 90,000 women and there have been no problems reported. Now we're actually only down to 4,400. And really, these people may have only gotten the vaccine last week or the week before. So we really don't know how mm -hmm. long they've been followed up. And this V-SAFE registry, which was created because the CDC realized they didn't have a good way to do active surveillance to see how people who are being vaccinated mm -hmm. um, were doing. So from what I've read, less than 10% of people who've been vaccinated have right. signed up. For That's what CDC is saying themselves, less than 10%. And they did a report recently um, saying that uh, they were reporting on, so they have like solicited adverse reactions in this app when you use it. And then there's places you can fill in yourself. They've reported on those solicited adverse reactions, which are like headache, fever, you know, not life-threatening things. <clears throat> but they have not reported on those things that people have typed in. And that's probably what the information that we <clears throat> really need to know. Um, right. There was an experience so, of a woman here in Washington state who used that and very seriously ill from the J&J &J vaccine. I, we've written about it. <clears throat> I wrote about it. It's a post on our website. And even in her last entry, she put help me exclamation point and still no follow up phone call to her. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, there, there's just so, so many problems. Right. And so you know, let's go ahead. Can, can we let me let me just add a little bit. So let's so that the, the viewers or the listeners can understand why they have to be discerning when they hear pronouncements from the CDC or read things in mainstream media. So mm -hmm. if you go to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists website. I don't know if you can, unfortunately, I can't share screen from my computer, but maybe you can oh, bring it up. But if you, I if you do cope, you should be able yeah. to share screen. Do you uh, want to give for it some a reason, you know, my computer just doesn't. Oh, your like computer Zoom. doesn't. I will try yeah. to find so it. So if you, if you go to COVID-19 vaccines and pregnancy, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, it says that in the interest of patient autonomy, ACOG, that's their name, recommends that pregnant individuals be free to make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And although they recommend it, they still recommend autonomy. And then they do go down to say that pregnant women were not included in the COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials. However, observational data from vaccinated pregnant individuals is being collected so they acknowledge it's being collected and it's limited. Yes, this is this is this is it. But the whole point is you would make pregnant women not knowing otherwise would think, oh yes, it's safe. The CDC has evidence, they have data. They don't have evidence, they don't have data. No. And it, it's it's you know, it's it's up to you. And point of fact, um, where was I? I think I was on the uh, I was on the CDC website. There's currently no evidence that COVID-19 vaccination causes any problems with pregnancy, including the development of the placenta. They say there's currently no evidence. There is no evidence. There are no data. We don't know whether it does or not. This is the old, the absence of evidence doesn't. Yeah. 
and absence. Yeah, I, I think, ahead. yeah, no, uh, two things I want to point out. First of all, is I want to see your handsome face and, and I keep seeing the top of your head. Okay, um, sorry. There we, go. <laughs> we need to lower your camera or raise it or whatever. I'm not quite yeah, sure what angle. Right. Um, thank you, Dr. Moss. But the other thing is one of the most important things, and you nailed it right there, that we need to educate listeners about is when you hear from public health officials, the term, there is no evidence that doesn't mean that they that they have found the solutions that the science has been done often it simply means they have no evidence cuz <laughs> they haven't studied it yet and and for anybody to say that to try to tell to coerce a pregnant woman we have there's been no births yet out of anybody who has gotten the vaccine we don't know and these the mrna particles those lipid nanoparticles you know, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I mean, Dr. Moss, they do are able to, they go throughout the entire body. It's been, they've been found in the heart, in the spleen, in the liver. They can get into the baby, right? They cross that placental barrier. I would think so. They can, they cross the blood brain barrier and get into the brain. So I don't know a reason why they wouldn't get into the placenta too. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we, we have no data, which means, whoa, kosh, and what they call hesitancy, I call doing your medical due diligence by gum, right? Or I, I call it prudence or prudence. wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Why take a risk? You know, you, you're pregnant. You're looking forward to, to having your little loved one. Why would you take a risk? with? I mean, women are so careful. They don't smoke. They don't drink alcohol. Why would you be injected with polysorbate 80 or polyethylene glycol? Why would you, why would you take a risk? <laughs> Or the spike protein, uh, you know, if if an average healthy person receiving one of these vaccines, um, if if the immune reaction is so intense that they're actually telling people, don't worry if you are sick for a few days, if you get a fever and inflammation and headache and you can't get out of bed, this is fine and normal. Well, we've known for a couple of decades that that sort of inflammatory reaction during pregnancy can be harmful to the baby. So if, if you're taking your chances with COVID, you've got, I don't know what the odds are of a pregnant woman even getting COVID. We should look that up and find out. But if you get the vaccine, there's a 100% chance you're going to trigger a very, very strong immune reaction in that woman with yeah. no long-term um, studies to say what it's going to do. So you know, it, it's just, it's so unethical that, you know, it just don't, it just boggle. It just <laughs> right, right. So let's, let's just walk, you're right. It is unethical. Let's just walk down the path a little bit further. So I was looking at a CDC morbidity and mortality weekly report where they were yeah. looking at women in pregnancy and 5% of the women in the 400,000 women were pregnant. And they say, although the risk of you know of a of a serious problem with the COVID nineteen infection for a pregnant woman is low. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, the risk is greater if you're pregnant than you're not pregnant with a COVID nineteen infection. So I decided let's look at those numbers. So guess what the fatality rate was for a pregnant woman? Okay, it was zero point one five percent. So wow. it's the infection fatality rate that you and I have learned is the infection fatality rate for the flu, right? 
Yeah, yeah, and they do push the flu vaccine on That's on pregnant right. women. Right. But I, if I recall, I looked at that study kind of closely, and I ran it by this awesome guy back east, uh, Josh. I think you know um, this yes. guy in particular too. Yeah. And he looked at it closely, and um, oh, it was this other one. Okay, anyway, I'm squirreling. So, yeah. but looking at the um, looking at the really closely, there were a lot of caveats that said some of the weaknesses of this study, some of the weaknesses were these many of the pregnant women who had bad outcomes had several comorbidities. They were obese. They had diabetes. They had the same comorbidities as non-pregnant people. Right. So was it the pregnancy that made them susceptible or was it all these other, they did not know. Right. 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 So really the risk is not there. The the pregnancy does not, according to the actual data, put you at really an increased risk. Um, Compared, compared to the average person that compared to the average person. Mm -hmm. One of the other limitations was they weren't really sure of the denominator, which means the risk could be actually less than 0.15%. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so here we are trying to scare out of their wits pregnant women into getting this vaccine when we really have no safety data no. and when their risk is really very low. Um, yeah. Now, yeah. so it may be a little bit higher than, um, than a, a non-pregnant woman the same age. But it's still overall very low. And of course, we haven't talked at all about all the things people can do, the early outpatient treatment Mm -hmm. that people could use so that they don't have to be mortified of getting COVID-19. Yeah. And these things, and many of them are safe for pregnant women. You would want to, of course, consult with your your trusted healthcare provider who understands uh, nutrient levels, safe levels when you are pregnant, so you don't get too yes. much for the baby and all that. But generally, the things that will help protect you, either from catching COVID or from getting a severe case of COVID, those are the things you need to make a healthy baby anyway. Right, right. You know? So vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc. I mean, there's no risk in taking those yeah. things. So if you don't mind, you may see the top of my head. I'm just going to look up That's okay. <laughs> and I think it's safe in pregnancy. I'm pretty sure I've looked this up already, but I'll confirm it for you. Already. Yeah, yeah. There And, you know, um, and fear is probably one of the most dangerous things to experience in pregnancy. And, you know, I, I was so appalled, um, was it a week ago, maybe two, when the new head of the CDC, Rochelle, I forget her last name. Walensky, yeah. Yeah, Walensky. What sort of a administration world leader chooses as the head of the CDC, a woman who is afraid, who, who, who goes on television and gives you some crocodile tears, says, I'm going to go off script and then continues to glance down at the script and, script and read it and says that she's afraid and we're doomed and we all have to get vaccinated. You know, I mean, that's that, what? Well, you know, leaders are supposed to get in front of you and, and say, everybody calm down. We got this. We got great science. We got great medicines. We got ivermectin. We got vitamin C. We got vitamin D. If you want to try the vaccines, they're experimental. It's your choice. It's a free country, you know. I, but no, she's, I mean, it, it was so unprofessional. So unprofessional. You just don't do that. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fired so up today. <laughs> I've, ivermectin, you're, you're really going to get, this is so funny. When you look at the pregnancy, you know, statement about ivermectin, it says risk of teratogenicity, risk of, you know, tumor formation, not expected based on limited human data. So there yeah. we go. So it's just, we have just as good data about ivermectin and pregnancy right. as we have on these vaccines, you know. Right. And when I had Dr. Corey of the FLCCC yes. on the show, yes. and I asked him about pregnancy, and yes. he said, yeah, the nutrients are good, but he he's not sure as a medical doctor whether or not he would prescribe ivermectin based on that just based on the limited data, right, it would right. be a one-on-one -on -one basis depending on the patient, right? right? And, you know, so so where is that caution right. with with these investigational products? It's right, just right. so abhorrent. And and here they're they're not only um being cautious in these population groups with all this limited or non-existent data, they're spending billions to try to convince these groups of people to to get the vaccine and you know it's it's been horrific that they've been doing the flu and the vaccines and the tdap all this time they're not licensed in pregnancy you know the whole thing I, it might be new to some of our listeners that there's no vaccine um licensed by the fda for use in pregnancy for protection of the infant you can choose it for your own personal protection if you want but it's not licensed to protect the infant because the fda has not seen enough safety studies to to determine they can license it to protect the infant so but can you, i just read yeah. you two sentences from the mm -hmm. package inserts for these vaccines yes they all you. say the same thing Safety mm -hmm. and effectiveness have not been established in pregnant women. There are no adequate and well-controlled studies in pregnant women because animal studies are not always predictive of human response. Put in the vaccine name, whichever one you want, should, should be given to a pregnant woman only if clearly needed. That's the statement that appears for every vaccine. But yet, as you suggested, we're giving the flu shot. We're giving the DTaP. Mm -hmm. we, we don't know if these are safe or not. We really no. don't. No, no. And I've looked at the studies that the CDC likes to point to to say, see, we're doing and they, they're doing retroactive. So you are tricked into getting it. You're told it's already been proven safe and effective, but you actually are in the trial study. And then you look at these retroactive studies. Who do they exclude from the studies? They exclude non-live birth outcomes. Oh, that's handy. Just exclude anybody who lost the baby after getting vaccinated. And, you know, I mean, it's just one exclusion after another. So um, is there anything else on this particular topic that you wanted to add before we move on? So, you know, the, there's the statement, buyer beware, caveat emptor. And mm -hmm. I think really, if you're a cautious person, if you really try and think through every decision, then really you should be thinking, we've just demonstrated using pregnancy, this COVID-19 vaccines or these vaccines in pregnancy mm -hmm. as an example of what, what people are being told mm -hmm. and what, what really are the data with regard to safety. And mm -hmm. so why would you take something like this when we don't know if it's safe or not? And we're only talking about short term mm -hmm. because you know, these, these vaccines were approved in the United States, Moderna and Pfizer, with only two months on average of follow-up. Yeah. We don't know about three months, four months, autoimmune phenomena, and of course, vaccines work by 
you know, an immune reaction. So autoimmune phenomena might take three to six months. And what everybody's concerned about is that what's going to happen this fall when coronaviruses typically circulate through the population? Mm-hmm. Are people who are vaccinated going to have cross reactions, intense immune reactions? And are they going to get the types of illness that were reported with the first SARS yeah. you know, virus, the mm-hmm. uh, severe adult respiratory uh, syndrome virus that in the animal models cause severe lung injury and even death of some of the animal models, uh, right. the animals in those studies. And we don't know. And in fact, the vaccinologist, Dr. Peter Hotez, Dr. Paul Offit last summer were really advising caution because we had not done the animal studies. Yeah. And the animal studies that then were done in parallel with human studies were not designed to tell if these outcomes were going to happen. Right. You right. know, yeah. I, I, so, I love the little memes going around the social media. That's two mice talking. And one says to the other, you're going to get that COVID vaccine. And the other says, no, I'm waiting for the human trials to be over. <laughs> right. Right. So if I can point out to everybody listening, the way it works is we do careful animal studies to see what we should be concerned about and be looking for in human trials but they did the animal studies after the phase one clinical trials and humans were already begun. So we didn't have any opportunity to learn anything that we might ordinarily learn. Mm -hmm. And then they rushed these vaccines. As we know, everybody's probably heard they take two years, five years, seven years, 10 years to really develop a vaccine properly. And they even combined phase two and phase three trials. So they really did rush it. And of Mm -hmm. course, all the ethicists last year writing about this said, pandemic or no pandemic, we should not be rushing vaccines. We had the bad experience. I don't know if your listeners know about the experience with the swine flu vaccine in Mm -hmm. 1976, but you know, there were deaths, there were 500 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, and they actually stopped that vaccine program. If we were, my wife and I have talked about the fact if we were had the 1976 attitude now, mm-hmm. we think probably these vaccines would have been stopped. Not just the J&J vaccine that's on pause, but mm-hmm. also the Moderna and Pfizer, because oh, we yeah. have over 3,000 deaths following vaccinations that have been yeah. reported to bears. Yes. And, and really, we don't have all the details. I know you sent me an email saying the CDC they, says they've investigated them all, but it's interesting with regard to bears, the CDC conveniently says there's not enough data on bears to really be able to say one way or another, mm-hmm. whether it was vaccine related or not. Mm-hmm. And then of course, there's the other thing that your listeners probably know, I, I'm sure you've well educated them that you know there was this Harvard study back in 2010 that said really only about 1% of adverse reactions are reported. Yeah. Yeah, in the second hour of the show, I've got a couple slides to go over some of this and okay. really focus on VARES. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I hope you can stick around for the second hour. I'll try to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know it's a long time for you to hang in here. And I've also got um, Alex um, uh, Mayer, who's coming back on. Uh, Meyer, I'm sorry. I always have to do the baloney song. Um, Oscar Meyer, uh, Alex Meyer coming on. Um to discuss this with us, because there's just such important uh, things there. But you, you really are the expert 
on ethics. And a couple of years ago, you wrote a wonderful paper. You looked at one of the head people here in Washington State. Um, her name is Mich Michelle Roberts, and she used to <clears throat> be the um, head of our immunization department. <clears throat> and now she is acting under Secretary of Health here in Washington State. So she has quite a lot of influence. She's also on the Vaccine Advisory Committee. <clears throat> and she's also on the board of the sort of independent nonprofit agency that's a public-private entity that is responsible for purchasing and distributing all the vaccines in the state. So she is everywhere the vaccines are. Um, and you wrote a great paper about the conflicts of interest. And one of the things I really wanted to point out here, and I, I you know, if anybody in the state is listening and they know Michelle Roberts, I want to say right now that I don't think she's a bad person. I think she believes she's doing well and right in what she's doing. But in my opinion, she's a fish who's swimming in water and is denying that she's in the water. She can't see it. She's so living in the water of pharma and vaccines and the belief of it and the culture of of trying to um, have people like me who are critical of it to paint me as crazy, you know, that's what she's living in. And it's so infuriating because conflict of interest, what you taught me, Dr. Moss, is that conflict of interest doesn't mean that somebody gave you some money and now you're going to do what they want you to do. No, 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 no. It's so much more subtle than that. So talk to us at least yeah. at first, what is conflict of interest? Sure. So, well, actually, can I take a step even before that? So what yeah. does the social science research say about the position that Michelle Roberts is in, in? And what it says is, and we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't know her. I have no reason to criticize her, but it says that unintentionally and unconsciously People are in these relationships, and as a result, they have a bias in favor of the person that they're in the relationship with. So she's mm -hmm. currently the chair of the Association of Immunization Managers. I was just on their yes. website, yes. and the Memorandum of Understanding. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go find that while you talk. Association yeah. of Immunization Managers says that the pharmaceutical companies, who are major corporate sponsors of this organization, and the state health departments will conduct themselves in accordance with standards and both parties will respect the promotion of business objectives by the pharmaceutical companies. So this is an organization that is promoting the business objectives of the vaccine makers. And yeah. what it also says in the memorandum of understanding is that the health departments are to give free unrestricted access to pharmaceutical representatives who want to come in and potentially educate the health department mm -hmm. about the vaccines, right? And mm -hmm. we all know uh, they've been called drug reps uh, or detail men. They have lots of different names, but we all know that they are not objective scientists. They're salespeople mm -hmm. and they're told how to push their product and their pay, their incentive depends on how much of their product is is purchased there we go yeah. so that yeah. second paragraph memorandum of understanding if you can mm -hmm. just maybe drag your cursor both parties will respect the promotion of business objectives there we go yeah so this is an organization that is tainted it's just 
Unfortunately, yeah. it's tainted by its association. So which, let's ahead. look at the Corporate Alliance members, though, here. So to our radio listeners, <laughs> I went to the Corporate Alliance page, and it shows Platinum Partners, Merck, Pfizer, Sanofi, Sequeris, Johnson & Johnson, Dynavax, GlaxoSmithKline, AstraZeneca, oh, Moderna, they're new, um, yeah. STC Health, VaxCare, it goes on and on. Um, and so, again, this is the Undersecretary of Health for the state of Washington. She is the chair of this organization. Um, and I do think that she's a good person. I think she's a good person who does not understand the deep influence. Everything about her life and her professional career has put her in and made her unable to see what seems so clear to us, Dr. Moss. Right. And the Association of American Medical Colleges back in 2008 required that all schools of medicine develop conflicts of interest policies. And mm -hmm. one of the things they specifically said is that they should limit the access to medical students of these drug reps or mm -hmm. these detail men. And so there's unrestricted access of these corporate sponsors to Michelle Roberts and to all the people, all these state immunization managers. And one of the things just on the other side, yeah, if you're if you're still on that a memo of understanding on the back side. I could I could go yeah. back to that. I was if looking at their stance on exemptions because they yeah. they are not for uh, non anything that's not a medical exemption. Yeah, uh, I'll go yeah. back to the yeah. memo of understanding. Okay. And, and go to the go to the second page okay. and see if you look at C there, mm -hmm. it says the health department when feasible and before information regarding a specific brand of vaccine is communicated. The health department will allow the pharmaceutical rep that manufactures or distributes that vaccine to review the communication for accuracy. Yeah. So read between the lines to make sure the vaccine is presented in the best possible light. And if there's something like, oh, well, we never tested that vaccine in pregnant women. Instead, we say there's limited data or there are limited data right. on, on the safety of this vaccine. You know yeah. what I mean? So. Yeah. Uh, this is the organization that she is now sharing. And like I said, yeah. I, I mean her no ill will, but she is in a compromised position because of this relationship. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I back when we had another Secretary of Health, Wiesman, when I first discovered this, I spoke to the Board of Health, the State Board of Health, and Secretary of Health Wiesman was there, and I voiced my alarm about this. And it ended up, he was a little angry at me. He thought I was being disrespectful, but I'm just like, I'm just telling the facts. This is concerning, you know? As somebody who represents an organization wanting scientific integrity, um, medical freedom, informed consent, uh, and no conflicts of interest, this is really concerning to me. Um, and so we got a meeting. So most of our, and the board of Informed Choice Washington went to a meeting um, and he fully supported her membership in this and it's, it's only continued. So, um, but the secretary of health of every state also belongs to, yes. or most of them to belong to Nacho, the National Association of um is it Nacho or no? Yes. Nacho's another one. That's the county health officials. And yes. they also yes. are against exemptions. Um, there's another one for the like heads of um, state organizations that I forget the name of it um, right now. It's 
And we could talk about exemptions if you want to. That's another topic that I happen to have studied recently because of testimony that I did for Connecticut. But um, am I still sharing the screen? No, we're back. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah um, before we leave the subject yes. of, of conflict yes. of interest, yes. um, is there anything else that you wanted to add there? Let's see. We're, we're doing good on time. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the whole issue of conflict of interest affects publications. If we can go to medical journals and the bias in publications. In yes. fact, we saw this so clearly last May in the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine with their articles about hydroxychloroquine. Yes. And they came out and, and these articles unequivocally said hydroxychloroquine not only did not work, but it increased morbidity and mortality. Mm -hmm. And shortly thereafter, the World Health Organization took its provisional you know, recommendation for hydroxychloroquine down from its website. And interestingly enough, even though those articles were retracted, they used a false database. And how these reputable journals ever mm -hmm. allowed this fake data to, yeah. be, to be published I yeah. mean, that's, that is, that is a really, that is an outrage. I don't like to use the word outrage. I think we use it too much, but that really is an outrage. How did we let like the two of the major impact journals in the world mm -hmm. publish false studies totally well, made up? And, you know, so we have, we've got, we've got two huge problems. We've got, well, three, we've got false studies made up that were so obvious they were pulled fairly quickly, but then we have ones that are much better falsely done in there with total bias and skewed and, and, you know, what you and I have seen over the years is the, the title of the study and the introduction of the study and the conclusion of the study, they don't match the data, right? You know, right. and then he, and then there'll be like an addendum or some appendix. So you go look at that and like, holy cow, you guys didn't even talk about this finding that was in there. And it's just so infuriating. But then the third thing is really good papers can't find a place to get published. That's and right. that happened with the FLCCC. I'm going to pull them up real quick here. Love these guys. So they wrote a brilliant paper on ivermectin, which is the next thing to be completely targeted. And I can't remember the name of the journal. Was it JAMA or, but it was accepted for publication through intense peer review. And then at the last minute, they were told that their studies weren't strong enough and they weren't going to publish it. Yeah. yeah. I this mean, is, this is what happens because pharma weighs in pharma, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I, I think it's the it's the pediatrics journal pharma buys maybe 70% of the advertising in these journals. Wow. And so they cannot afford to lose their corporate sponsorships. And and it's the same thing with all these all these journals. They are heavily dependent on pharma. And so whenever pharma is unhappy, they mm -hmm typically back down. So if it's all right, I don't know. So can you can you read this or does it show up backwards? Oh, no, that looks good. The truth about the drug companies. Yeah. Who wrote that? This is Marcia Angel, former editor in chief in the New England Journal of Medicine. OK. And the subtitle is how they deceive us and what to do about it. Oh, so I'll I let love you that. Read, so I'll let you read this one. What's this one? Can you read it? Uh, the trouble. Oh, go over to the trouble with medical journals. Oh, okay. wonderful. All right. Okay. And so this is Richard Smith, who I think was editor of the 
Lancet, I think. And then this one is, can you see this one? Okay, this no, hook? no, move it over the other way, the other way. To the right? No, this I right? can't. <laughs> there you go, down. You're too close okay. to the camera. Right, <laughs> Just sorry. go ahead and read right. it to me. <laughs> Ethics, the medical profession in the pharmaceutical industry. This one's on the take, okay? Mm. How medicine's complicit with big business can endanger your health. This is a former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. This is a major medical ethicist. This is, I love this title, White Coat, Black Hat, Adventures on the Dark Side of Medicine. Okay. Wow. And he talks about the relationship between physicians and pharmaceutical companies and even how the studies yeah. that drug companies do are biased because people become professional subjects mm. for these research studies and mm -hmm. they just go from study to study and they make a living participating. Oh, in good heavens. Studies. You know, right. if I could ask you a favor, when you think of it, would you just shoot me a list of titles so I can get them up on the website for our listeners? I would love to be able to um, not, you know, you know, not now, obviously, but when you have time, shoot me that list. And that sounds like a great leading reading list. And I, I've got a couple, but I'm not in the room that have um, that I have then. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. It, it's just so important to, for people to understand. It's not just vaccines. It's the entire yeah. paradigm. And everything about health, I mean, it's one of the most infuriating things about the, the government response to COVID is that everything we need to do for health that would have helped us, they've been preventing us from doing. You know, right. you, we, even in the, in the craziest, when the lockdown was the tightest, you'd hear of people out in a canoe by themselves in a lake who were arrested. What? You couldn't walk on the beach. You know, people are walking through the forest even now with masks on. They're everything, you know, they're inhibiting real health, not talking about the foundations of health. And people who are denied love, access to loved ones, hugs, that joy of being with people that are important to you, that can make your immune system plummet and your health plummet. Right. And, you know, it, so, but this is happening sort of everywhere. We have got like, in, especially in first world countries, I think, I think it's really interesting that anytime they survey like the homeless population in this country, they have found that they have far less COVID than anybody. I wonder why that is. It's just, you know, I, I mean, maybe it's the over sterilization, the over masking up and, and all these other, and they're not going to the doctors. So, yeah. so, um, so let's, let's take something that you just said, perhaps one of the worst things, and remember I'm a professor and so I teach a lot, is people are being denied critical thinking. Yeah. The whole idea is a mask or six feet of physical distancing is to prevent you from catching an infection from someone else. Mm -hmm. But if you're in the woods by yourself, if you're out on the lake by yourself, you don't need to be wearing a mask. It does, yeah, no. And and I we won't go into the whole that mask argument can go on forever. We will, sure, we, sure. I don't think it, no, no, you need but, it but, but, the, but the critical <laughs> thinking should, I mean, because right. I see people out jogging. They're not within a, a hundred feet or a thousand feet of anybody else. And actually the mask is bad for them because oh, it's yeah. lowering their oxygen level. Recently for Easter, we were in church and I saw an elderly gentleman with bad emphysema mm. who walked in wearing his mask and mm. he could barely get his breath. I was actually, he was turning pale white. I was mm. afraid he was going to pass out if not 
have a cardiac arrest. So I, I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, sir, you don't absolutely need to wear that mask right now. I would recommend that you take it off. So he did take it off for about five minutes. His breathing got much better. His color improved. And then he put it back on. Oh, dear. But at least, no, but at least he recovered. He was, yeah, yeah. to use a medical term, he was hypoxic. He had a wow. low oxygen level that was really seriously dangerous for him. So in every single state, there are medical exemptions to these orders. So why are people who, who are very clearly at risk from mask wearing, the, 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 messaging has saturated so much that that dear gentleman thinks yeah. he has to wear it it right, right? and yeah. he he should have felt very confident not wearing it because he is he's the one that clearly <laughs> qualifies right right and and i don't understand that and you know part of it though dr moss because i'm a hopeless optimist i look around and i do see everybody masked up in situations where it's not called for. And I, you know, the science doesn't support it, but let's set all that aside. The powers that be that are driving all of this, they've got their own agenda and goals of what they want, but bless the hearts of all these wonderful human beings, because they are told do this to protect your fellow human being. And they're doing it. Now, I can't do it because I know the science and I know what they're going for. I know the politics. But those who don't, who are swimming in mainstream news, you know, that really shows that human beings are really awesome. <laughs> and and it, I, it makes me even angrier, though, that they're being taken advantage of, that kindness and that the, the desire to help your fellow human being is absolutely being taken advantage of. Right. But they yeah. do need to... Yes, absolutely. And, and, and they're not thinking it through. Really. Mm -hmm. So would you allow me to go back? So we never really yes. finished talking because this is important. People have to understand that the so-called science that yeah. is being used to tell them they have to wear a mask, they have to stay six feet apart, they have to get a vaccine, that the science itself has been corrupted because of the influence of the pharmaceutical industry on the medical journals. Okay, yes. so I held up all those books. Yes. All of those editors-in-chief of major medical journals admitted that they no longer trust what they read in medical journals because they're aware of what goes on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. They're aware of how they've carefully selected the patient population to make the results look positive or how mm -hmm. they've played with the statistics mm -hmm. to present it in the best possible light. And of course, you you know the difference between a relative risk and an absolute risk, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And although they may say the vaccine effectiveness last year was 40%, that was a relative effectiveness. If you mm -hmm. look at the absolute effectiveness, it may have been 10% or 5%. Or there was a Cochrane review a couple of years ago that said one particular year, it was 1.5%. <laughs> <laughs> and only are, in certain um, populations. Right, in others, right. it was negative. In seniors, right. there was negative efficacy. Yeah. Right, right. A couple, right. A couple of years ago, actually, the um, confidence interval crossed one, and there was no effectiveness for the flu vaccine mm -hmm. for people over the age of fifty-five, I believe. But so this is this. It's important for people to realize they, you know, the the thing that people say, well, what do you, what did, what did Dr. Moss hope to get across? People need to be discerning. 
They need to think for themselves. Mm -hmm. They need to use common sense and logic. Mm -hmm. And they need to be aware, right, that that everything they're being told isn't true. Right. And, and, you know, why after eons of human existence on this planet and all the infections going around, you know, why suddenly do we have to so fear an infection with a 99 point whatever um, love percent level of recoverability from what the entire world shutting down economy shutting down masking up your children I don't care what you do to yourself but I I just putting masks on children just breaks my heart (laughs) and and it doesn't you know but I'm hoping people will start to think critically what is happening. I don't want anybody to die of COVID. I know some people are susceptible. I don't want anybody to die of the response to COVID. We're having a lot. And then the psychological harm, the children. I've talked to so many parents whose children are just not thriving emotionally, physically. You know, it has been so damaging. And and none of the, you know, except for there, there's some great, like Florida's doing great. He set everybody free. But so many of the states are still like, why aren't you weighing? We want to weigh risks and balances. Look at the, look at the suicides in children. Yes. Look at the, the growing obesity in children because they're not outside. They're not playing. The, some are playing sports, but some aren't. They can't do it in a mask, you know? Right, right. So yeah. this has been a huge mistake. People are doing much worse as a result of this lockdown. The attempted suicide rate, the suicide rate, the rates of mental illness. My my sister is a is a counselor, mm-hmm. and she her business has never been so bad. She has people calling her that basically got better and were doing great five years ago, and they're mm-hmm. calling her out of the blue and said, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I was doing really well, but this pandemic and being locked in and being isolated. I just can't handle it. My anxiety is crippling me. Oh, I need, so... I need to talk to you. Yeah. No, no, but this is what, yeah. I mean, you know, talk to anybody who's tried to make an appointment with a licensed counselor or with a psychologist, they are all booked. They're right. absolutely booked. Right. So this is what's going on. Of course, our economy has taken a huge hit mm-hmm. and we're victims of what's called single factor analysis that mm-hmm. all these public health experts are looking at is what is the absolute safest way to try and prevent the spread of infection. They're not thinking at the overall health of the population. They're only thinking of one infection. It's a huge mistake. And I heard your governor Inslee just yesterday said, we have to prevent the fourth wave, right? Yeah. He's predicting oh, yeah. the fourth wave. And we all have to go start thinking about locking down again. So. Again, if you apply logic and common sense, we've locked down three times already. Yeah. And we're now looking at the virus going back up again, right? It's going back right. up. Right. Yeah. And and I hear my engineer playing the music. Thank you, okay. Eric. And so we're gonna we're gonna take a, a quick break here and we're gonna come back for another great hour of radio. Say hang on, Dr. Moss. Okay. Um, you're listening to an informed live radio on eleven fifty AM KKNW. We'll be back in a bit. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. 
We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Welcome back to the second hour of An Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and we just have had some great information today. We've got Dr. Alvin Moss joining us from West Virginia. We were talking about medical ethics and so much that's going on. Um, and this next uh, segment, we're going to be moving on, bringing in yet another guest. Thank you, Dr. Moss, for continuing to hang on there. I appreciate it. I so value your insight. But we've got Alex. Alex um, Meyer, who you, um, our listeners have met before. She is um, the head of the California chapter of Children's Health Defense. And there was a letter that just went out today um, having to do with uh, medical exemptions in California, and it's sort of breaking bad news. And so we really need to talk about this because sometimes what happens in California tries to spread to the rest of the country. Um, so welcome, Alex. Thank you for coming on in the last minute. Thanks, Bernadette. It's glad to, it's good to be back, and it's really nice to meet Dr. Moss. He he's a hero, such a man of integrity. You know, um, I hope others are following in his footsteps. They say when one man stands up, fifty more grow a backbone. So <laughs> let it be, let it be. So I'll let you go ahead and share screen if you're ready, um, Alex. And and um, did you want to give a little background on the vaccine exemption law in California? Um, sure. Yeah, so we just had some big news happen in California today, and it's really almost on the heels of these bills that have been passed in California since 2015. We started out with SB 277 in 2015, and that really limited the types of exemptions people could get for their children uh, from vaccinations, and it limited also um, the doctors as well. There was no more personal belief exemption, which covered religious exemptions and philosophical exemptions. It just went down to the medical exemption with a lot more restrictions. Then Senator Pan in California came back and he introduced a bill called SB 276, and he tried to further narrow the medical exemption. And that made it so that doctors were almost criminalized for writing a medical exemption for a child who'd been previously injured by a vaccine or who might have a family history of autoimmunity or a sibling who'd been disabled or even died from a vaccine, then um, the other children in that family would still be required to have vaccinations because the only exemptions really came down to what the CDC said were okay exemptions. And you basically, your child would have to have had an anaphylactic reaction to almost every vaccine on the school schedule, which is about 10 vaccines, in order to be disqualified from it medically um, the next time. 
Yeah. Um, I, I just want to inject right here so people sort of understand that we cannot, at the federal highest level, you cannot write guidelines, and these are federal guidelines, not laws, guidelines that fit every single person. You have to write them at this big, general, broad population level. And it is the ethical duty, right, Dr. Moss, of every yes. physician in the, their doctor's office to evaluate the child in front of them and to medicate them at a personal level. And so the state of California have stepped in and pretty much said that this broad sweep, cookie cutter, one size fits all, you know, that violates. Um, could you speak to that, uh, Dr. Moss, real quick? And then Sure, sure. Please? So as a physician, I examine the patient. I take a medical history. I know the family history. I know the past medical history. And then I am in a position to make a decision about what treatments to provide, what treatments not to provide. But basically what is the case in West Virginia and now also the case in California is that physicians basically no longer have the right to practice medicine. The state is, is practicing medicine and, and basically telling physicians, even though in your considered medical opinion, this vaccine is contraindicated, you nonetheless need to give that to this child. Right. And so that's the state practicing medicine. Yes. And they haven't examined the child and it's entirely illegal. Yes, there's no physician patient relationship. Mm -hmm. There's not. There's not. So, for example, let's just make this abundantly clear to people who might not be familiar with it. If your child has a medical exemption written by, by a medical doctor who believes your child could be injured by the next vaccine they receive or a particular vaccine, that medical exemption now goes into a database in California. And the Department of Health can now review that and decide that your child doesn't deserve that medical exemption and your child is now put at risk by the medical board and by the Department of Public Health in California. Right, and not only and from the physician's perspective, it's even worse than that because they're gonna review the medical exemption that you wrote and decide that they don't like how you write your medical exemptions and potentially they could take away your license to practice medicine because you're writing medical exemptions. Exactly, so and they're, actually they're really intimidating the physicians and I can tell you it's very hard because this has been going on in West Virginia now for a number of years there are very few physicians willing to write medical exemptions, even if they're appropriate in West Virginia. That's right. And, and I would say, you know, by and large, every medical exemption in California is appropriate because I have met most of these families. I've seen what happens. There's, there's a little boy named Otto who's in a wheelchair and his father is a, an incredible videographer and he was paralyzed from the waist down by vaccines and he no longer has a medical exemption. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. We've had so, Otto's picture up on a billboard in West Virginia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Vaccines do cause injuries, even though there are some people who would like to say they don't. That's right. What I think is really fascinating, though, is that the Department of Public Health is trying to take on the ind individual physician's role and overruling medical exemptions. And there are physicians out there who won't write medical exemptions, and they're trying to play the role of a public health expert. And that's not their duty. Their duty is to their patients. So they kind of, a lot of these people have swapped roles and it was entirely inappropriate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. agreed. It's very yeah. sad. So, so then the latest was this letter that just came out. Um, ah. Yeah. 
So if you have that to share, and while you pull that up, I'm going to um, tell listeners, because I believe that Alex has some listeners down in California very concerned about this letter, and they might want to call in if they have a question, or anybody is, who's listening is, is welcome to call in. Um, the phone number is 425 425- Three seven three five five two seven. That's four two five three seven three five five two seven. If you want to call in and ask us a question, okay. So what are we looking at here, Alex? And, and remember, part of our audience is is audio. I mean, just uh, radio. So, gotcha. Okay. Well, before I just start describing what we're looking at, let me just give a little bit of context for what just happened today in California. And the context is that they've really tried to criminalize doctors for writing medical exemptions. And, you know, it's, it's technically illegal. So there's there's going to be a way to overturn this um, in the future. But what they tried to do with SB 276, they actually tried to make the doctors write medical exemptions under the penalty of perjury. Perjury is a felony involving a fine and jail time. It's just completely outside the scope of what a medical doctor should be subjected to. So we got that removed. And so the context that led to this letter is that instead of a doctor being accused of perjury, if somehow the public health department didn't like the medical exemption, the doctor's exemption, medical exemptions for children would be removed if the doctor was under investigation by the California Medical Board or the Board of Osteopaths. And so we thought, okay, well, good. There's only a handful of doctors who are under investigation right now. Well, that all changed this morning. This morning, we all woke up to a letter from Gavin Newsom to every school in California saying what looks like a pretty innocuous thing, reminding them that if a doctor's under investigation in California, then the medical exemptions are not valid. And you look at this and you think, okay, well, there's only a handful of doctors who are under investigation. So, you know, whatever. Well, there's a link in the middle and it says Mm -hmm. list of disciplined physicians. Okay. Okay. Now, this is where you are going to lose your, you know what, <laughs> I'm going <gonna>, <laughs> to stop sharing this and I'm going to share the next thing. I'm going to share what comes up when you click on that link, okay. um, if I can find it. Um, and what they did, I'm going to try to narrate this while I'm looking f- for uh, where I put it. I think I put it on my desktop. Um, I have it but I'll, I'm going to tell you about it. It is literally a list of every physician in California who has written even one medical exemption. Doctors that just know that their patients are going to be harmed. They, they're not anti-vaccine doctors. They might not know anything about vaccines. They might have one child in their entire career that they've seen with oh a medical God. exemption and a medical issue caused by vaccines. They wrote an exemption to protect the child. And now oh as of today, technically all those children lose their medical exemptions in California. Oh my God. And they, this- they really just want it so that nobody has an excuse. You have no, you, you cannot live your life or go to school or do anything if you don't agree to be vaccinated. Exactly. That is horrific. This and is this- a crime against humanity on yeah, such a massive yeah. scale that I just, I'm, yeah. So, Alex, what's happened in West Virginia is that we have families moving out of state at a regular clip. And I'm just wondering if as a result of this, you're going to see another move of Californians to somewhere else. Absolutely. There's going to be another mass exodus. I mean, already last year, I think almost 200,000 people left, 200,000 families and 200,000 people left the state. Wow. Are you guys seeing the list right now? Or did I share? I, yeah. yeah. I am. Now, there, 
they're not all disciplined. I mean, was it disciplined for any reason or are these all disciplined because of their uh, medical exemptions that they've written? They wrote at least one medical exemption and maybe they trumped up some other charges. These people are not all disciplined. So oh I'm my God. Tell you how many pages long this is. Um, these are just the A's. Wow. This is, yeah. I so pages long. To those, <laughs> you know, our, our radio listeners, she's scrolling through. I mean, we're only in the B's now and it's page after page after page of doctors. So basically what, it, what has happened today is that it's been announced that there are no medical exemptions available in the state of California for children. They don't exist. This is horrific. Right. So the uh, law is she's only on the G's and she's still scrolling. Whoa. <laughs> right. This is 92 pages long. This is, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is every doctor in California. We don't okay. know yet. We haven't had a chance to look at what these people have done to get on this list. How, how, <laughs> how can anybody see this? And, and it's like, how, how can they not now see the monster? They might've thought, oh, you know, blah, 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 and hemmed and hawed. But, but when you see this and you realize that you cannot get a medical exemption to a product that has been deemed by the Supreme Court to be um, unavoidably unsafe, for at least some of the population. This is just horrific. Oh my God, she's still scrolling. I'm still scrolling. Radio. I'm just on the S's right she's now. Just on the S's. I mean, did you, is there a number? Do we have how many thousands of doctors are on there? That's I haven't heard a number yet. And we could see how many are on each page. I'd say there's probably 75 on each page times 92 uh, pages. 92. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Whoa. eight or 9,000 maybe. Yeah. Whoa. So how many doctors are in California? I don't actually know. What percent of doctors are on this list? Maybe the majority. No, I that is that. just, and who's, who's behind? Is this still Dr. Pan at work or, you we know? Think, yeah. We think everybody's calling this Dr. Pan's list. I can't verify that yet. It just came out today. So there's a lot of rumors about it flying around, but I, it's unconstitutional. Everyone, every adult and child has a medical exemption to a vaccination to any medical procedure. Any medical procedure should be done with informed choice, which is why Bernadette's show is yeah. <laughs> with informed yeah. choice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm going to give that number again, 425-373-5527, 425-373-5527, in case there's somebody who wants to ask a question. I'm not sure that we, ha like in this particular, we quite have any answers, but you've got to know that the brilliant people at Children's Health Defense and others in the medical and informed consent m uh, movement are scrambling to find the right um, legal approach to stop this, to, to figure out what to do. Um, Absolutely, we yeah. will. And just for anybody who doesn't know, if you don't live in California or you haven't seen our letters, we have been writing some what have been described as sharp-tongued letters to the schools <laughs> about mandating products that are under emergency use authorization, like the testing, like the like the vaccines and the shots. And we wrote a very similar letter explaining EUA law to county supervisors as well. And mm -hmm. people are really liking those letters. They are changing a lot of minds. They're helping people who don't want to consent to that because they do not have to. And they are actually informing schools and supervisors who, you know, that they really need to do the right thing. And a lot of them are contacting us and saying, oh, now that I know it's illegal, we're not going to do that. Others like LAUSD are still going forward. So mm -hmm. um, 
they're going to hear from us very soon, LAUSD, in a very special way. Wow. Yeah. Oh. So, to all, Bernadette, to all your listeners know that on the uh, package insert sheets and the FDA statements for each of these COVID-19 vaccines, it explicitly says there are no FDA-approved COVID-19 vaccines. These are all unapproved vaccines. And then actually, when you read about emergency use authorization, it says this is they're all investigational vaccines. Right. And it says that they cannot be required and that anytime you know it is given, you have to give that information to the individuals. Now, here in Washington State, um, Michelle Roberts in our Department of Health, and we were talking about Michelle earlier in the show today, they have added to a form that goes out to parents in Washington State on their action report under recommended vaccines for children, they now have the SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 vaccines. No explanation. Um, and then the date that the vaccine is due would be the, 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 the year in which the child would be old enough to receive it based on emergency use authorization now, like when that child would turn 16. But if they're 16 now, you know, so, I mean, but this is violating emergency use authorization language and regulations. You cannot do that. Um, it's just, it's so infuriating to me what they are attempting to do. Um, I've just got to hope and pray and believe, and I really do believe in the human spirit, um, that all of this craziness is finally going to wake people up because, you know, we've all used the analogy in our movement that it's like boiling a frog. I guess if you put a frog in cool water and you slowly raise the temperature, it doesn't know you're cooking it. Um, but I think they're turning up the flame <laughs> so high, so fast right now that people are finally seeing the bubbles and knowing they got to get the heck out. And I, you know, I don't it's know what the backlash, <laughs> yeah. right? It's the backlash that we're hoping for. So in, in West Virginia, just recently, they held a conference for all the physicians and healthcare providers to try and give them strategies to talk their patients into getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm -hmm. And during it, they did let slip that not enough people are showing up to get vaccinated. So my hunch is that actually they have more vaccines now than they have people willing to get them because people are concerned about just the things that we've been talking about for the last hour. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I'm we're still welcome conversation on that topic, but I just, I wanted to click through here for a few minutes, then we're gonna be um, going to a break and then we'll finish up more when we come back. But now within the back of our head, knowing what's going on in California in regards to vaccination and no medical exemptions, I wanna just go through some things that I quickly put together. There's that letter that Alex was reading from. Um, vaccine passports, of course, have been in the news and you know, you, you're you gonna have to show proof of uh, COVID-19 vaccine in order to go to the theater, go here, go there. But um, luckily, a lot of states are stepping up and that's where they're drawing the line. They're saying, no, I draw the line there. So Texas, Florida, Idaho, Utah, Montana, and Tennessee have already banned passports. Others are considering it, have dropped legislation, including Washington, but um, ours can't go anywhere until next year. And it's, it's highly doubtful that our governor would do an executive order. 
we already talked about the Cal- California letter revoking medical exemptions for school children. That does not bode well for people, uh, the government saying you can't say no to a COVID vaccine. Um, so I wanted to move on just quickly to VAERS to update people on the latest numbers that were just released today. So a total of 68,347 deaths have been reported. Um, Cases? Uh, cases. I, I, I apologize. Um, Ad- not deaths. Adverse, adverse reactions. reactions. Thank you. My brain is on deaths here. Um, adverse reactions. There were 8,285 coded as serious. And there, there's a lot of flaws here, even to coding as serious, because most of these are being input by the injured person themselves. So the person not feeling well, it's the first time they've ever done it. They don't even know what they're doing. So, you know, whether or not any of this data is accurate, it, you know, it's, it, it's very infuriating. We don't have an active system, but anyway, so, and then there's been 2,602 deaths. This was as of April 8th, the CDC actually says we're above 3000 and I'll get to that in a second here. So uh, just briefly, VAERS Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System established in 1990. It's a passive reporting system, relies on individuals to send in reports of their experiences to the CDC and the FDA. It can't be used for causality or even frequency of event, but it can be used to spot patterns. Um, And Dr. Moss, in the first hour, you mentioned that Harvard Pilgrim study that showed that less than 1% of vaccine adverse events are reported. This was a million dollar study the CDC contracted. And when they didn't like the results of this pilot study that they did, they ceased communicating with the study um, authors and they just, they didn't bring it any further. And, And this is where we ended up with COVID with a vaccine adverse event reporting system that collects less than 1% of the data. That's where we started the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines. Right, right. And and can we just say, the New York Times writing about this said, we're using a 30 year old passive reporting system to track when we're giving, you know, millions of of vaccines per day. And they had hoped to have an active surveillance Mm -hmm. system called, I think it's called BEST, but it's not going to be ready for another month or two at best. And then we've already talked about V-Safe and how mm-hmm. V-Safe is really only less than 10% of the population getting vaccines and signed up for. It, so we really have yeah. inadequate data to know what's going on with vaccine reaction. Right. And, you know, one of the major flaws, and this is a little bit of a dark humor, but a major flaw of that V-Safe app on people's smartphones is dead people don't text, okay. you know. So, um, but, and so here I will explain to, to viewers is we're looking at a graph that shows um, over the years from 1990 to 2021, the, uh, the average, uh, the number of hospitalizations reported every year to the VAERS system and the number of deaths. And it shows very clearly, let's see, the deaths are on the left, that there were usually around 200 or so on average deaths reported to the vaccine adverse event reporting system. Remember, that's less than 1% of possibly of deaths. We don't know for sure. But in 2021, this thing just spiked. So now we're only in April and we're over 3,000, right? And the same with hospitalization. It's just off the charts. Uh, What's going on? Bernadette, I was analyzing this data on Wednesday and I I have some some more comments about this. Oh, good. Go ahead. Yes. 
Yeah, I actually made these same charts. I did a line chart and you did a bar chart, but they're basically the same. And you can see how, I love how you use the word spike because it reminds me of the spike protein in the <laughs> vaccines, um, but it does spike up in 2021. In 2021, listen to these numbers. There are more than 2000 deaths reported in 2021. And this is just the first three months of the year, right? Mm -hmm. And Bernadette just said, on average, there are about 200 deaths a year reported to VAERS after vaccinations. Now, if you think about the fact that the 2,000 deaths reported in 2021 is only one quarter of the year, we could end up the year with 8,000 deaths reported to VAERS after COVID vaccinations. And I wanted to say something else that I discovered in the data when I was doing a similar analysis, which is of those 2,000 deaths in 2021, um, most of those are COVID, but only five of those were for non-COVID vaccines. Five. Wow. Wow. So I, we're looking at the most dangerous set of vaccines we've ever released on the market. It, exactly. And so many, I think everybody that I've talked to can tell me of somebody whose grandmother died after getting the vaccine, their grandfather died, their father died, they, an aunt, um, a cousin, um, a, you know, I'm hearing a lot of elderly, but young people as well, right? And I've got more information to share there. And um, let's see if I can get this. I have a really too. sad story to add to that. I just heard it two days ago. This is somebody in my area who is a friend of a friend. Mm -hmm. And this is a woman who's about 60. She has Bell's palsy and she couldn't get the shot. And so she, uh, she wanted her uh, husband to get it. And he's very healthy and athletic and everything went fine after the first one. He unfortunately passed away after the second one. Oh, I'm so sorry. Right. And, and that sort of situation, a lot of times I'm hearing, did it get reported to VAERS? And they're like, no, they didn't feel like they should report. I'm like, but you're, you, you know, did the doctor report, you know, no, I, what do you mean? No, right. They're supposed to report whether or not they believe it was associated. This is how new things are discovered is, you know, but we, you know, without that active system, um, we just don't have the information. Uh, the, and I've heard, you know, as, you know, being with informed twist Washington, I get phone calls and emails and, and contacted by people and, yeah, we're just um, doing what we can here. So in Washington state, I just wanted our listeners to know that 44 deaths have been reported in Washington state, particularly, um, see if I can get this thing to go. And I just wanted to point out what some of these look like, like here's a 58 year old female who got it on January 4th and died on January 4th. The write up is this vaccine received at about 0900 at her place of work, a medical center where she was employed as a housekeeper. About one hour after receiving the vaccine, she experienced a hot flash, nausea, and feeling like she was going to pass out after she had bent down. Later at about 1500 hours, she appeared tired and lethargic. Then a short time later at about 1600 hours upon arrival to a friend's home, she complained of feeling hot and having difficulty breathing. She then collapsed. And then when the medics arrived, she was still breathing slowly, went into cardiac arrest and was unable to be revived. And so apparently, according, I'm going to skip through some of these. We might go back to them later if we want to talk about particular. Oh, where did the, um, did I forget to get it in there? 
um, I, I must have missed getting the slide in there, but I do have a slide from, oh, no, here we go. Um, so the CDC says from December 14th through 2020 through April 12th, 2021, VAERS received 3,005 reports of death among people who received a COVID-19 vaccine. CDC and FDA physicians review each case report of death as soon as notified and CDC requests medical records to further assess reports. A review of available clinical information, including death certificates, autopsy, medical records revealed no evidence that vaccination contributed to patient deaths. So I, you know, I ask people to think critically, go back to that 58 year old woman whose health was fine began to decline and hours later she was dead. And the only change in her life was that vaccine. Um, in the first hour, Dr. Moss and I were talking about the fact that in the world of public health and CDC, no evidence does not mean they have evidence it didn't cause the reaction scene. It means they have no evidence, that no way to prove it. And I love that saying, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Yes, yes, <laughs> right. exactly. And with that, I think I'm going to have us uh, take a, a quick break. Eric will lead us off with a little music. We're going to listen to a couple of PSAs and, and one great ad from another show here on 1150 AM KKNW. You're listening to an Informed Life Radio. We'll be right back. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Hello, I'm Nathan Mum. Join me and Mike Roday as we host a weekly technology show that talks about technology for the everyday common person. We are a live radio program that airs Saturday from 4 to 5 p.m. on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch. If you go to facebook.com forward slash tech time radio youtube.com forward slash tech time radio or twitch.tv forward slash tech time radio you can catch us live saturdays from 4 to 5 p.m you can find us at all podcast services online from apple to google and everything in between during this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable we've also learned that it's unnecessary treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. 
It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. And with me this second hour is the wonderful Dr. Moss and Alex Meyer. And, you know, we've been covering some uh, kind of shocking information of what's going on in California, where a letter has gone out and basically uh, said that every single medical uh, exemption issued to children in, in the state of California has now been revoked. That is ultimately what has been done here. Um, and, you know, one of the shenanigans that I wanted to talk to both of you um, about is emergency use authorization. So in order under the regulations for emergency use authorization for vaccines is there cannot be another option that works. There cannot be a highly effective treatment, basically, um, in order for that authorization to stay. So I wanted to show you um, a statement here. Let me go ahead and get this uh, from current slide. Okay, so um, there's been some great frontline doctors, all kinds of amazing doctors who have not been just sitting back waiting for a vaccine. They've been reaching to the shelf of known products, looking at the symptoms of, um, of COVID patients, finding very effective treatments. And the latest one uh, within the past six months or so that has come to light is ivermectin. And this thing is powerful. The studies now show Although ivermectin cannot be directly compared to a vaccine, let's look at the efficacy. And I'm quoting here the FLCCC doctors. Research has demonstrated that using this medicine, ivermectin, for prophylaxis can reduce the risk of COVID-19 infection by 92.5%. This is based on seven controlled trials on over 2,600 patients. Six of these were prospective trials as opposed to the retrospective studies that some opposed to other preventative COVID-19 treatments have criticized. Three of those six were both prospective and randomized, meeting anyone's standard for a credible study. Um, so here we have an effective treatment. Ivermectin won the Nobel Prize for because it has saved so many lives as a anti-parasitic medicine. Hundreds of millions of doses are taken every single year. It's one of the safest drugs ever, uh, ever made. It's, um, it's now generic. Mostly Merck is making it and they don't make hardly anything off of this. They've got a, another antiviral, which would be a blockbuster if they could get it um, approved, but it's still in, in clinical trials and it can't compare to ivermectin. So before we get back to our wonderful conversation, I wanted to play uh, for you both this, because I think it's so important. We've been offering a lot of fear 
uh, out there to our listeners, but I want people to know that if they decide to stand up and speak out, take off their masks, say no to the vaccines and, and not be afraid and, and join us in taking back our medical freedom, they've got something here um, no matter what COVID-19 is circulating in their community. Doing so. nothing is doing harm. And doctors always say, do no. I'm just going to ask you guys if you're able to hear the. Yes. Okay, good. Um, hold on. I'm just going to, I'm going to apologize real quick here. You guys heard it. Share sound. Um, there again. There we go. Okay. I'm going to from there and oh, sorry. <laughs> the radio on is going, I can't see what you're doing. What are you apologizing for? Okay, here we go. Oh, it keeps stopping. We'll just do that. Doing nothing is doing harm. And doctors always say, do no harm. Well, doing nothing is doing harm. So early November 2020, Dr. Fethi reviewed at it studies. And I thought, this is incredible. Within a week of me seeing that data, I got this flood of patients that had, had been exposed to COVID or had contracted COVID. They would go to the urgent care or to the emergency room, and I would see a text on my phone that said they were, you know, admitted to the ER, and within 10 minutes, they were discharged. And I'd see the text that they were discharged and I would call them immediately and say, you know, what happened? Why were you at the hospital? And they'd say, oh, I have COVID. And I said, well, what did they do for you? They said nothing. They didn't give me anything. They said, go home. I was telling my staff, um, you know, connect me to anyone that has COVID. It's an emergency, don't wait. The patient should immediately be placed on ivermectin to stop the viral replication. I just start them. And then I say, go get tested. And then when the test comes back later, they're already better because I've already started them on the medication. And then their entire families get infected and I've started them. And that's, I mean, I can tell you family after family after family that um, I've seen this in. Not even one of my patients has had um, a side effect from this drug. Not one of them. Every one of her patients who took ivermectin ranging from age 30 there to 80 no recovered. There at all for a patient to say, look, I have a right to take that drug. I kind of feel like this is intellectual starvation and that these doctors and hospital administrators and boardrooms, they need to get with it. And they need to see that, that the data is there. And there doesn't need to be more data. It just needs to be more treatment. And this intellectual starvation has led to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths for no reason. And it's still happening. My father, who was a brain surgeon, and I have so much respect for him before he passed away. He wrote many books of poetry and one of his books was about starvation. And the last line in this poem, it goes like this. 
you who are healers, open your hands. Lend nurture and aid to shatter this cycle. Bear witness to their cries. Lift their burden. Save their lives. So it's so important that I love that intellectual starvation. Um, that's exactly where we are. People are being starved of information um, about their medical freedom, about um, their rights, about the products they're, they're expected to take, the risks they're uh, expected to take, and they're being starved of information of the choices. And I wanted to just say quickly, here in, in Washington, somebody reached out to me her elderly mother was in the hospital, had just gone in that day, had COVID. It was just a few days ago. The doctor at the hospital said they were going to give the woman remdesivir and some steroids. They didn't expect her to survive. They didn't think these medications would help her because she had some underlying health issues, 80-year-old woman. So she reached out to me. I reached out to some doctors who really know about ivermectin. And this woman brought her mother home, got her started on ivermectin right away. And the woman is doing beautifully. The doctors in the hospital condemned her. And first of all, they wouldn't let the family in. So she was alone, 80 years old, little bit of dementia, health issues, and being told you're not going to survive. And it's been four, is it been like four days? I, I lose track of time, three or four days. And she's doing well, surrounded by her loved ones, eating well, drinking, resting, recovering. Um, so, you know, we have to, this is, this is our mission, right? Everybody here to end intellectual starvation. I love that doctor um, that was interviewed. So, you know, we've covered so many areas here and we've got, you know, like 15 minutes to go. So I'm going to kind of ask each of you, of all the things we've been talking about, what, what do you feel compelled to like talk about right now? Where, where do we want to go? So, yeah, let's just say that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are repurposed drugs. They're drugs that we have a safety record for for decades. They're not a vaccine that's been created in 10 months and now being given to millions and millions of people with really, without adequate safety studies, mm -hmm. with really uh, without adequate efficacy studies. And mm -hmm. so this whole thing, those of us who are just a little skeptical and especially knowing Bill Gates and especially knowing Tony Fauci and knowing their past history. And I think Children's Health Defense, I think Bobby Kennedy Jr. has a book coming out about Tony Fauci, yes. and I can just imagine what it's going to say. But um, I got mine know, on order. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but the whole thing is very sad because we didn't need emergency use authorizations for these vaccinations. We really needed to use these repurposed drugs and the protocols that some doctors had even figured out last April and last May. Right. So we we've known for approaching a year now how to treat this. I think there's a Dr. Zelenko in New York. Mm -hmm. He's treated over a thousand patients. Maybe one or two have died. I mean, you know, he has a great track record 
Dr. Marek, you, you know, Dr. Marek's at Eastern Virginia Medical School and he's part of this frontline critical care doctor. Mm -hmm. They've done an excellent job of figuring out very practically how to do this. And there are, by the way, studies that document the effectiveness. And I just saw one that came out recently. It was a flawed study, reminded me of the ones from last spring, flawed yeah. studies to try and disprove the effectiveness of these repurposed drugs. And right. as a reviewer pointed out, they gave ivermectin. They didn't give vitamin C. They didn't give vitamin D. They didn't give zinc. They didn't give the whole protocol. And they only tested it in a very limited population. So it was not really a very good study. And yet no. they're, they're touting that to try and dissuade people from realizing that ivermectin is perhaps that in combination with these other things, our best approach right now. Yeah, exactly. What about you, Alex? Well, I totally agree with Dr. Moss. People have to understand that for the vaccines to get an emergency use authorization, they had to meet four standards set up by the FDA. One of those standards is that the director of the HHS has to declare and maintain a state of health emergency. If that goes away, then the EUA products all have to come off the market because it no longer meets all four of those standards. Another standard is that the known and potential benefits have to wait outweigh the known and potential risks. Well, how can you really make that calculation when you're saying that the benefits and risks are unknown? Exactly. So um, <laughs> these are not fully licensed products. Another one of the standards relates exactly to this issue of hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and the list goes on and on, as you both know. And the fourth standard is, is what I call the four A's. There can be no adequate, approved, and available alternative. And that includes drugs. That doesn't just include vaccines. Mm -hmm. And if any one of these drugs were to be adequate, approved, and available, then the EUA vaccine would have to come off the market. They cannot let these drugs be on the market because they lose their precious vaccines. Right. It, so it's it, all exactly. Right. It, and, and they couldn't continue to do what they're doing. And I mean, it's right there. It's just, it's so clear when you can see it. I just want everybody to yeah. be able yeah. to see Yeah, I hate to be cynical, but they've announced, they've estimated the profits from the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. They're estimating the one might make $15 billion, the other $18 billion. And it wasn't that long ago that if a pharmaceutical company had a $1 billion drug, it was a huge winner. Yeah. And now, you know, we're more into some of these uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Some of these drugs are five or $10 billion drugs. But this, there's, I think, only one pharmaceutical that's going to make more money in a year than these vaccines. What's these the one? Huge. Yeah. It's, it's Humira. It's, it's to treat autoimmune. Oh, the, the drug that they're going to give to the people who develop autoimmune disorders from this, yeah. these products. Well, yeah. It's going to make, <laughs> it's going to make more money. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know what I tell people, Bernadette and Dr. Moss, I tell them sometimes, listen, if you don't believe or understand all these facts, it's not your fault. The difference between what you think and what I think is just a difference of information. And what I've done, I always have two giant jigsaw puzzles going, two intellectual jigsaw puzzles. One is the mainstream narrative, which is really easy to get. It comes out of everywhere. It comes out of the mouth of everybody around you. It comes out of the radio, the TV, everything you read. It comes out of politicians' mouths. It's easy, you can make like the border of that big jigsaw puzzle and fill in all the pieces in the middle. But you know what? You need to have a second jigsaw puzzle on your table. And we're setting up the pieces for that jigsaw puzzle for you. You didn't have to do it. You don't have to assemble your own border of your second jigsaw puzzle. We're doing it for you. Mm -hmm. And you just keep that second jigsaw puzzle in mind. And anytime you get a puzzle piece, 
that doesn't fit in that other jigsaw puzzle that you think you've got down, put it over in our puzzle and see which one starts to make more sense after yeah. a while. Because our puzzle is going to make more sense to you once you start taking those abnormalities and anomalies that happen in your jigsaw puzzle and you put them in ours where they actually mm -hmm. make sense. Right. And, you know, right now with the big vaccine confidence billion, I mean, another $10 billion thrown at it, just it's so staggering at so-called vaccine confidence. In order to keep people getting this, they have to keep the fear up. They have to keep the emergency. We're having announced, you know, new variants, new waves so that people continue the fear. So we're moving into, you know, we're in spring heading to summer where traditionally all of these things go away right? You don't have these colds and flus and in that in the summer. And more than a year ago, the federal government came out and said that the coronavirus can't survive in direct sunlight, that in, in proper humidity, it dies very quickly. Um, and so it's, this is when they really ramp up the propaganda the most, because they know that's when people um, fear disease the least, because there's less of it going around. So you have to artificially keep the fear going in spring and summer and, you know, early fall. Sorry, right. I just had to get that plug in there. Well, uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus they say causes the symptoms that are called COVID-19, yeah. it's the biggest unicorn virus in existence. It's the only one that now supposedly doesn't respond to vitamin D or hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And it's the only one that doesn't give lasting antibodies. I mean, the list goes on and on. That's just right. a partial list. I made a list of like 20 of those things, but you know, that's your second puzzle. You guys go figure out those things that are right. unique to COVID. And then you're starting to assemble your second puzzle. So, yeah. And, and maybe we'll finish up here in the, the last uh, few minutes on one of the, besides trying to vaccinate pregnant women um, and children, which is so appalling. Um, the fact that they're vaccinated people who are already immune the Washington Department of Health yesterday had this little meme said, did you already have COVID? Should I get, should you get vaccine vaccinated anyway? Well, yeah, go ahead and get it because we don't know how long natural immunity lasts. Well, first of all, we do. The studies are showing that it's very long, very broad, you know, like it always is. Right. And, and SARS, its parent or cousin we're finding that 17 years later that people still have some immune memory and ability to resist the original SARS. And so the studies prove them wrong, but how long does your vaccine last? You know, you can't, you, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. It's like and, the same argument they used to use for breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. I mean, they're really, they're trying to sell us again on bottle feeding instead of breastfeeding. But yeah. the difference this time is like, oh, your immune system doesn't work. You have to get this shot. And it's ludicrous. Yeah. 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 Can we talk about the immune system? So we have an innate immune system and we have an adaptive immune system. And our own innate immune system includes T cells as well as B cells. And the vaccine only produces antibodies that are produced by B cells. And that's the adaptive immunity. But our body has a much more robust, robust response. So we get an infection naturally. Think of measles. When we get measles naturally, we have lifelong immunity. And I think you're very aware of the fact that the measles uh, vaccines are wearing off after 20, 25 years and mm -hmm. we have what's called secondary vaccine failure. Right. So we, you know, the whole issue of vaccine science, maybe it'll actually people start paying attention a little bit more to all these vaccines and really how good are they and how safe are they? 
because okay. this is really bringing all this to the fore, I think. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the last few minutes of the show, um, let's start with you, Dr. Moss. If, if people want to read more about what, what do you want them to come find you to go research medical ethics? What do you want to pass on? Where do you want to send uh, viewers, listeners? Uh, so I really like Children's Health Defense's uh, publication, The Defender. That's, that's really good. Mm -hmm. uh, the Informed Consent Action Network has yes. very good materials. They have a high wire show mm -hmm. that really um, has a lot of good information and actually publishes the references for the show. Yes. The Monday following the show. So that's, I think, Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Just Google Highwire. Thursdays. Mm -hmm. Thursday, sorry. But I think those would be two places. I mean, honestly, since I was not trained and you talk to medical students now, they say maybe we got two or three hours about vaccines in four years of medical school. Mm -hmm. You know, no physician really has had good training on this. And so you have to educate yourself. And some physicians are doing it. And everybody else is educating themselves mm -hmm. because um, really it's uh, the pharmaceutical companies don't really want us to figure out what's what's really going on because then they would realize vaccines are not nearly as safe and as effective as the uh, marketing message would want us to think. Exactly. Thank you for that, Dr. Moss. What about you, Alex? I second what Dr. Moss said, that you should be reading The Defender at childrenshealthdefense.org. All of the articles there are fully sourced, referenced, and fact-checked by a fact-checking team of doctors and scientists and lawyers. I mean, mm -hmm. you really can't get any better information. It's impossible to dismiss what's written on The Defender. In fact, I just wrote another article for The Defender this morning about the, the pause of the J&J &J vaccine because people were getting blood clots in the brain, but also accompanied by... Um, like a blood thinning problem, a low platelet problem. And so they can't use heparin. So, you know, blood, a lot of blood clot reports isn't enough to stop the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and idiopathic thrombocytopenia is not enough to stop the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. But if you get both together, then they need to pause it. <laughs> both conditions are actually fatal, um, potentially wow. fatal. But if you get both together, you know, that's enough for a pause for them. So um, that article is going to come out um, in the next few days, probably. And I also second to watch the Highwire show from ICANN on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. East Coast time. And that's like, you know, that's like church to just remind you that <laughs> not everything you see in the news is true. And you just you really got to stay the course, be constantly learning and watch that every Thursday. Read the Defender in between. And you, soon enough, you'll be able to fill out that second puzzle and if you don't understand what we're talking about today, in a few weeks, you will. Yeah. And, and Alex, uh, people in California, can they get a hold of you through the California website if, they're really, if they've got a medical exemption they've just lost? Absolutely. Yeah. They can get a hold of us at ca.childrenshealthdefense.org. And there's a, a tab at the top. I think the background's blue. It's actually a banner. And we've got four intake forms for plaintiffs for various situations. Please fill out a form and our attorneys will get back to you. We've built a database of 400 attorneys that are skilled in this kind of law. We're building a database of doctors who are skilled in this kind of medicine and science. And yeah, we're, we're unstoppable. Oh, you are doing an awesome job, Alex. Thank you for joining me today. And Dr. Moss, thank you so much for being on an informed life radio. You know, human spirit is alive and well. We're gonna do this. Everybody enjoy your weekend. Um, Feed your, your soul. Do not be starved for uh, information. And um, anyway, come back and see us next week in Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW.
Need information about your child's vaccinations? Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization of parents, family members, medical professionals, educators, and Washingtonians from all walks of life. They believe in personal freedoms and individual choices, including health care choices. Their mission is to advocate for vaccine policy reform based on scientific integrity and individual health needs, to promote education about healthy immunity, and to protect informed consent and medical freedom in Washington State. To stay informed, visit informedchoicewa.org. Informed Choice Washington envisions the future where every doctor is fully trained in identifying vaccine risk factors and recognizing vaccine injury. Every child is afforded a personalized approach to disease prevention, and every parent has the freedom to make the best healthcare decisions for themselves and their families. They know every child matters. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.